Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy. I want to thank you all for joining me today on this lovely Monday after, for me, a weekend or actually almost a several, several days of some great, amazing conversations and continuing education. Last Wednesday, I went to Graded Motor Imagery, taught by David Butler. Listen, if you have If you've read the book, that's awesome. If you're using the apps, that's awesome. I applaud you. I think that's great. If you have a chance to take a graded motor imagery course, whether it be from David Butler or from someone else, I highly suggest it. I cannot tell you the nuances and the little nuggets of wisdom you get from taking this course in person. I was just like, what? I didn't know half of this, that you can do all this stuff with the app the, the nuances that you can do, even with the mirror training and the implicit motor imagery and the explicit motor imagery and the left-right discrimination, it was amazing. So I highly, highly recommend it. I actually can't wait to kind of pour through the book and, and try some of this with my patients this week. I'm really excited. And then Friday and Saturday, I was honored and thrilled and, and just so psyched to be at EP3, which is Explain Pain 3. And it was, again, with David Butler and Laura Mosley and Mark Jensen. And it was easily one of the best professional experiences I've had in a really long time. It's like the people there were friendly and nice and open, and the discussions were great. And of course, learning from Lorimer and learning from David and learning from Mark, it was, it was really special. And I think everyone there would agree that, that, that there was... It's hard to explain. It's like you're you're in the right place at the right time with the right people. That's the best way to describe it. And, you know, after the course ended on Friday, I went out to dinner with David and his wife, Juliet, who is, you know, they always say there's like the behind the scenes person, the brains and the, and that's Juliet. I mean, she's really spectacular. So I went out with uh, David and Juliet and Lorimer and Mark and a couple of PT friends of mine from New York City, Tracy, Erica, and Luke. And it was just, at times, I felt like I I, I couldn't believe that I was there, that I was sitting there with this amazing group of people and laughing and drinking wine and, and having great conversation. And so... And the next day when Lorimer asked, oh, how, did you have a good time at lunch? And I said, or at dinner last night. And I said, oh, God, I had a, it was amazing. And he said, you know, I noticed sometimes I would look over at you and you were like kind of off and then you would snap back into the conversation. And I said, yeah, I think I was just sitting there looking around the table in amazement thinking, what am I doing here? How am I even here? How am I with these people? And, you know, taking from what uh, Mandy Antonacci said at the Women in PT Summit, part of me was like, God, I'm so lucky to be here. But it's not luck. It's more than luck. It's, you know, I put in the work. I put in the hard work at cultivating relationships and at studying the neuroscience behind pain and pouring through their work and supporting them. And so it's not luck that I was there. It's because I put all of this out into the universe and it brought it back to me. So anyway... I just want to give a huge thank you to Noi Group and Body and Mind and Mark Jensen. And I ordered Mark Jensen's book. I can't wait to pour through that. And to David and Lorimer and Juliet, thank you, thank you, thank you. It was a, a beautiful week and it was just wonderful. So anyway, if anyone has the chance to see either of them 
speak in person. Do it, do it, do it. Okay, on to today's podcast. Uh, today is with Erin Jackson. Erin is a healthcare lawyer. She specializes in working with physical therapists. And she uh, she's, uh, aside from being a healthcare attorney, she's an, a, a consultant and health equity advocate. She is the managing partner of Jackson LLP, a healthcare law firm in Chicago, and principal of Jackson & Company, a healthcare consultancy serving the compliance and business needs of providers and practices nationwide. In addition to her healthcare practice, Erin serves as the president of the nonprofit organization Inspire Santi, using her healthcare knowledge and patient experience. She speaks to other healthcare professionals about the importance of maintaining a patient-centered practice. In the past year, she has spoke at the APTA's combined sections meeting, keynoted at the Michigan Physical Therapy Association Conference, and appeared on podcasts like the APTA's Move Forward Radio. In 2017, she will be speaking at physical therapy conferences around the country and expanding her reach as an educator, consultant, and advocate. So what did we talk about? That's simple. You ask questions, Aaron answered them. Easy, right? So we talk about why every independent PT practice owner needs a policy, a privacy policies and procedures manual, and we also say exactly what that is and what's in it. Uh, how to know if your practice falls under HIPAA rules and regulations. Uh, can referrals and profit sharing be kickbacks? Creative solutions for pro bono work what a good legal representative should know, and how to find the right one for your practice, everything you need to know about treating Medicare patients if you're an out-of-network provider, meaning you take cash only, um, and so, so much more. So these are your questions. Aaron answered them all. It's a great episode, eye-opening in a lot of ways, so be prepared to take notes. And of course, if you don't have the time to take notes, they are all in the show notes over at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. So be sure to check them out there. And as always, be sure to check me out on Twitter at Karen Litzy NYC. Same thing on Instagram at Karen Litzy NYC and on Facebook, facebook.com slash healthy, wealthy, and smart for updates, blogs. I'm going to definitely be doing a blog about this past weekend at EP3. Um, so... At any rate, I think you guys are really going to love this episode with Aaron Jackson, so enjoy. Hey, Aaron, welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you on. Thanks for having me, Karen. So last time you were on the podcast, we chatted about our uh, mutual chronic histories of chronic pain, and it was such a great conversation, and I think that it really helped to spark some good conversations on social media, and was also translated into French to help French medical students. So how exciting is that? That's fantastic. Yeah, so that was, that was some interesting, that was an interesting request I got. Uh, if, can, can I translate this into French to help our medical students? And I said, by all means, of course. So thank you very much for that. It was a great interview, and I, I really think that it helped a lot of people. So thank you for being so open and candid. Absolutely. And now today, we are switching gears. We are taking off your patient hat and putting on your professional hat. So like I said in the intro, you are a healthcare lawyer, but you want to fill in any blanks there, maybe talk about your evolution as a lawyer and how you came to be where you are now. Sure. Um, I'm a healthcare attorney in Chicago. My husband and I own our own firm, and I migrated towards health law actually as a result of my chronic pain journey. 
I got to know physical therapists and met a lot of them, if you listen to that podcast, and interacted with a lot of providers. And I had studied health law in law school and really sort of migrated towards wanting to help the kind of providers who helped me. I saw patient-centered providers, and I saw a great opportunity to help advance good medical care by supporting them and giving them the legal and regulatory and compliance support they needed to run really efficient, high-functioning, patient-centered practices. Yeah, and I think that is something that is so needed in the physical therapy world because I think it's something that's lacking in the physical therapy world um, in general. And that was definitely evident when we put out to social media, hey, I'm going to have Aaron on the podcast. We're going to talk about healthcare law. Does anybody have any questions? And we sure did get a lot of questions. So let's get right to them. Now, the one question that we're going to start out with is a question that I have because Aaron prepared for me and for my practice a privacy policies and procedures manual. I put it up on social media and the one thing I got the most was, what is that and do I need to have one? So I, Aaron, I will ask you, what is a privacy policies and procedures manual? And if you are an independent physical therapy owner, regardless of whether you take insurance, you don't take insurance, you have a brick and mortar, you don't have a brick and mortar, do you need, well, first of all, what is it, and do we need one? Okay. So before I even get to that, I'm going to issue my disclaimer. Um, <laughs> this is not legal advice. Uh, we're having a general conversation about some of the issues that arise in PT practice. Um, about 90% of my clients are physical therapists, so I see a lot of divergent issues in PT, but it varies State by state, there are state practice acts, state ethical rules, um, federal laws that interplay, all sorts of stuff that plays into this. So nothing you and I discuss here should constitute legal advice. It's general guidance and it's a jumping off point for people to start learning about the sorts of things they should be thinking about and talking to an attorney about. So I really recommend people work with a healthcare attorney and sort of my shtick that I often say when someone calls me and says, do I really need an attorney, is I say, you know, I see a physical therapist when I have an injury and when I need professional help. I have an accountant do my taxes. And I have an expertise. This is something that I do. Um, and I believe that you should involve an expert, but that doesn't mean just listening today. That means involving an expert Right. So if you have specific questions about you, your situation within the state you are, and within the practice that you have, please consult a healthcare attorney one-on-one -on -one so that you can get all of your specific questions answered. Because today, these are just some guidelines and some general advice to get you thinking, hmm, maybe I do need to look into this further. And if you need to look into it further, contact a, a healthcare attorney privately. Yep. Okay, so okay. let's go to what is a privacy policies and procedures manual? What is it? Do I need it? Why do I need it? Okay, so if you are a covered entity under HIPAA, um, which means you engage in some sort of electronic transmission, usually it means you take insurance, but there's also various things that could also lump you under there. Then there are requirements that you abide by certain privacy requirements, certain security requirements, 
in certain procedures if there's a breach of patient data. So HIPAA requires that you have a written policy manual and it's required to have certain things. Things like um, the manuals I create, guidelines for your passwords, all the way down to way more nuanced things that people were not even aware that they had to do. It needs to be in writing. There are certain things you need to do, um, at least on an annual basis, but there are certain things you're required to do a minimum of monthly, like checking the um, the antivirus logs on your computer to make sure that no one's breached it. Um, so things like that. If you are not subject to HIPAA, and I strongly encourage people who believe they're not subject to HIPAA to consult with an attorney, because I think that oftentimes people think they're not subject to HIPAA, and they are. Um, but if you're not, it's not a shortcut or an easy way out. You're still subject to a lot of privacy laws, your state privacy laws, uh, state medical privacy more broadly, the PT ethical requirements in your state, and then any provisions of national healthcare laws and privacy laws that do apply to you regardless. And so some state laws are less stringent than HIPAA, in which case you might get off the hook if you're not a HIPAA-covered entity, except most of them are stronger or about the same as HIPAA. So you end up having the same requirements. Best practices, regardless of your HIPAA status, is to have a written policy and procedure manual that outlines exactly how you protect patient privacy. This ensures that if you're audited by CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services that oversees all this stuff, that you have all your ducks in a row um, and that you can establish what your privacy practices are. Plus, I would hope that my clients would say, it makes things so much easier when I don't know what to do with something or when a patient asks that I amend their record or a patient asks that I send their doctor a copy of their record. It makes it so much easier to have all these forms in a binder with my practice name on it and makes it so I don't have to reinvent the wheel. So yeah. that's sort of and that, that makes a lot of sense. And now, I guess a big question for you, and I'm sure you get this question a lot, is a HIPAA-covered entity for a non versus a non-HIPAA-covered entity. Now, I was under the understanding that if you do not bill electronically, that you are not considered a HIPAA-covered entity. But is that correct? Is there more to it, less to it? What's the story? There's a little more to it than that. Um, if you accept insurance and you somehow don't bill electronically, and I'm not a biller, so I don't see the inner workings of, you know, how the actual billing's done. Um, gener the general rule, the 30,000-foot rule, is if you take insurance, you're covered entity. If you take Medicare, Medicaid, any of that, you're a covered entity. If you don't, you're not. Um, the general rule is also that doing things like exchanging emails with your clients, your patients, whatever word you use for them, isn't going to automatically revert you into HIPAA status. That said, these are all really broad, um, and it can be a really specific question with really far-reaching consequences if you get it wrong. So we encourage best practices, and that means having a comprehensive policy for how to handle it. Right. So 
regardless of whether you are considered HIPAA or not considered HIPAA, it's a good idea just to have the policy to cover your butt either way. Yeah, and the differences usually end up being fairly minimal in terms of what governs a HIPAA protected, a HIPAA covered entity practice versus not. Got it. Okay. All right. So that was the, the one question was, what is it? Why do I need it? So, okay. Um, now let's move on to some of the questions that we got from people on social media. So here's one from Marina Castellanos. God, I hope I said that right. Uh, and she had two questions. So one was ways to obtain a treatment space. Would having an arrangement where you only pay for time use be legal or must it be a flat monthly rate? So this plays so closely into her other questions, so I'd love to answer them together. Okay, so her, all right, her other question was, I, was, I wasn't sure if you wanted, so yeah. some clarifications of what a quote-unquote kickback is, especially in regards to renting or sharing space with someone you end up receiving clients from. Okay, so something I see very often with especially young PTs who are just starting out is the renting rooms in gyms or things like that. Um, it's a really common issue. And I think that it's a great way to start out your practice and keep costs low by renting space from someone else. Um, so the most common example I would say is as follows. A new PT goes to a gym owner and says, I'd like to rent your massage room for seeing my patients. And the gym owner says, okay, um, how about I charge you as rent because you don't have any money right now. How about I charge you as rent a percentage of the money you make from seeing patients in that room? So let's say the PT makes $1,000 the first month from seeing patients there. And the gym says, okay, well, 10% of that's ours per our agreement. That's not okay. Um, that's not okay because let's use Ohio, for example. Um, the Ohio Practice Act prohibits receiving anything of value or giving anything of value for the referral of patients. Then looking at the Ohio ethical rules, they pro prohibit direct or indirect, overt or covert, uh, cash or in kind, compensation for referring or receiving a referral of a patient, regardless of the source of the compensation. So regardless of the source of the compensation means that if you're paying a gym 10% of the money you're making for patients seen in the gym, you're giving some kind of referral fee, which is a kickback. Um, you can't pay or accept these kinds of fees. So in this example, the PT agreed to pay the gym based on the number of patients seen, which is determined as a percentage of the patient's income. The more patients the gym refers to the PT, theoretically, the more money the gym is going to make. And that's really murky and you don't want to be involved with that. It could potentially get you in trouble. And you can see how it creates not even an indirect, but a direct benefit of the gym to the gym to start referring you lots of patients 
because they've got this massage room sitting empty. If they refer all their patients to you, all their clients, now they're making more income. So sort of starting from scratch, the way I tell someone to analyze this issue is one, look at your state practice act. Most practice acts um, define a kickback pretty broadly. And so this is going to fall under most practice acts prohibition. The second thing is I'd look at your ethical requirements. Again, most expressly prohibit kickbacks. Then there's federal anti-kickback laws, although this falls more under the, the state requirements and state laws. So what I'd suggest instead is, because I do think it's a great idea, getting back to our question about using space in a gym, what I'd suggest instead is a stair-stepped rental agreement, regardless of how many patients you see. Okay, so, what does that mean? I'd say for the first three months, I'll pay you 300 a month. And then after that, we'll reevaluate, depending on how much I'm using the room. Or 300 a month for the first three months, then 600 a month, or something like that. Or pay a flat rate for any time you're using the room. Let's say you rent the room at $25 an hour. Yeah, Step and that's, that's what I see a lot here in New York is... There are these sort of personal, they call them personal training gyms, where the personal trainer will bring a client in, has free reign and free use of the gym, and they're paying the gym $40 each time they bring a client in, or $25 each time they bring a client in. So that's okay. Yeah. Okay, but a percentage of what you make giving back to them is where is not okay. Yeah, I think for the, the most general part. question is you want to ask yourself, does this motivate the gym to refer me patients regardless of whether or not they need PT? Is it motivating them to refer me patients in such a way as could sort of screw up the purpose of what I'm trying to do and could land me in hot water? Right. And it kind of, it almost sounds like the physician-owned PT practices where the physician can refer where a physician is referring one of their patients to their PT practice, and it does get a little murky whether or not does this patient need it, uh, because regardless, the, the physician is making money on back to himself on that referral. Right. Okay. All right. So that's that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Next question. Sorry, I have to move a large cat off of my papers here. Um, okay. Next question is from Victoria Strickland. And I think this is actually quite interesting. She said, how do you approach charity cases in our practice? Best policy for this. And got to thinking more deeply about this after reading a post on your blog. And she said, even though I'm out of network and cash-based, or perhaps because I'm out of network and cash-based, I do think a lot about how best to go about approaching charity cases individually or in group setting. The whole point of being my own boss without insurance telling me who to see and what to do is to really help people. A lot of uh, people don't have the cash. Thinking about community workshops, group classes and healthy living, general fitness. So what do I need to consider and have in place legally to protect myself as I serve those who cannot pay? So it sounds to me, uh, in a nutshell, is how do you do pro bono work? Absolutely. I think it's a great question. I, I think it's a great question, too. I love, I love that they're thinking about this. And I think the blog post to which Victoria is referring was, I recently wrote a post about the coverage gap. And there's a misconception that everyone in America is insured now, or if they're not insured, it's because they're somehow opting out of the, the rules and 
sort of disregarding them. And there's actually a, a segment of people who make too much to be on Medicare or Medicaid, excuse me, but not enough to get a subsidy um, from um, any of their, any, they make too much to be on Medicaid because their state didn't expand Medicaid, but then they don't make enough to qualify for the lowest bracket of subsidies on the marketplace because the marketplace says, oh, you should be on Medicaid. And so there's this gap of people, some of whom make like 17,000 a year who don't have access to health insurance. They very much still need health care. So this is a really pertinent question. So what I would say, my first point is that all the concerns for operating a charity practice um, or seeing charity patients are all the same concerns as for paying patients. The same standard of care applies. You have to treat them with the same quality and the same standards as you would a patient who pays. And all of the uh, practice guidelines and stuff that you follow when treating paying patients applies here too. So a couple of those are treat from within a corporate ent entity, which is going to shield you from some liability, um, have professional liability insurance, um, you still need a really good way to keep the patient records. You need privacy policies and procedures, which we already chatted about. Um, the really important one here that I'd emphasize is you need to treat within your practice act. What I've seen is when people are offering charity care, there's an inclination to sort of offer a broader treatment than sometimes people's practice act allows. There's a sense of I'm doing something good, I'm trying to help, and thus I want to offer really comprehensive services to this person. You still are limited by your practice act, regardless of whether you're being paid or not. Um, so that's something that I think is pretty important to underscore. And people think it would be difficult to, to sort of not abide by that, but it's not. It's easy when you're helping someone and trying to help someone. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is watch out for Medicare beneficiaries. Um, they can't see you for free if it's a covered service. If it's a covered service, which physical therapy is, you need to submit a claim. If you're not a Medicare provider, then you can't submit a claim, which means you can't see them even for free. And then answering the question about the group setting, um, it wasn't completely clear to me if this pertains to group wellness uh, visits, which aren't a covered service, or if it's group patient visits, uh, which are sort of an increasing trend. Um, some decent percentage of physicians now say that they see patients in group settings, and it can be a really beneficial arrangement, more cost-effective for the provider, um, and really beneficial for those with chronic conditions. A lot of physicians do it for diabetes or various chronic conditions because the support that the patients receive from each other is extremely valuable and really helps with healing. So even aside from the charity case sort of scenario, the group visits may be something that the people want to investigate and often insurance does cover those. Um, so those are sort of the, the broad strokes of what I'd consider with charity care. Um, I would approach it just like any other patient, except when you check them out, the bill is different. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and you know, I think if, 
if you have the ability to do that as a, a private practice owner, I, I think it's wonderful, and I think it should be part of your uh, part of your practice. You know, there's nothing wrong with being able to give back. And I actually I think that the group programming is very interesting to me. So if you had a group of people who all had a knee replacement, let's say, and you wanted to see them together as a group for uh, whether it be exercise or, or education, then you can build that accordingly. It just has to be built as a group. Yeah, and often it's reimbursed. It allows providers to see more patients in the day, especially in areas where there's really long waiting lists and stuff. Um, A lot of times patients would much prefer the group setting. Um, I'll also say that most providers who do group visits don't consider them a complete replacement for one-on-one visits. But maybe instead of seeing a patient one-on-one weekly, which could be really expensive, they see the patient one-on-one monthly. And then the other visits are group visits. And sometimes what they'll do is involve other professionals in the group visits so that perhaps there's a, in a physician's office is the best example, there's three nurses in the room, one doctor and two medical assistants. So while the doctor's talking with one patient, someone else is moderating the discussion among all the patients and the nurses are going around and taking everyone's vitals. But that's really adaptable to any sort of healthcare context and can be hugely beneficial for the patients. They really, they really, a lot of times have very positive outcomes. Cool. That's great. So that's, so for all of you private practice owners out there wondering how, how you can see uh, multiple patients and make it meaningful, that sounds like it's a really, a really great way to do it. Okay. Moving on. Next question from Blake Dirksen. Um, first of all, he said, thanks for doing this, a great guest and topic to have. And he is interested in learning more about any problems or possible HIPAA complications with using something like Google Docs as your EMR scheduling billing platform and what a clinician can do to stay compliant and what to avoid. It's a lot of questions there. So. Let's take, are there any HIPAA complications with using Google Docs, and now I think it's called Google Suite, as your EMR scheduling and billing platform? So uh, part of G Suite is uh, HIPAA compliant. What they'll have you do is, I think, a two-step authentication. They have a white paper, a website on this specific issue, and as long as you follow their authentication protocols, Um, It is HIPAA compliant. They'll have you sign a business associate agreement or a BAA. You should have BAAs on file with all of your vendors anyway. So the fact that they're doing this is a really good sign. And if you used a less well-known one, which I'm sure there are plenty of smaller um, options than Google, which is like the biggest known known, uh, option, I would just suggest making sure that they provide you with a BAA, a business associate agreement, or um, asking someone to create one for you, like an attorney, and then having them sign it. Because if there's a breach of privacy, uh, you're on the hook and they're on the hook too. But I just really urge caution with all this stuff. Okay. All right. So, and the, the Google suite can do everything from your EMR to your scheduling and your billing? 
I don't know exactly about that. I know some people keep records in it. Yeah, I know people keep records in it. I, I wasn't sure that there was a billing platform, unless that means that you're just creating your super bill within that, perhaps. Maybe. You know, yeah. I don't, I, I'm not sure. Um, so uh, what, uh, what, how about what to avoid with, with using something like G Suite? Are there any things that you want to be very careful about? I think that, and this goes back to, again, the importance of having a privacy policy. You want to be sure that your passwords are, are strong. You want to be sure that um, you're doing the, uh, the checkups regularly on your computer into antivirus stuff, into whether there's been any breach of your, of your data, of your system, all sorts of stuff. And that's why a whole chunk of a HIPAA policy is about the technical security requirements because this has become the reality of how medical records are kept. And so it's a lot of stuff that goes far over my head. And I recommend people <laughs> involve tech people or stuff like that because it can be really complicated. And this is, this is precious information. Right. Um, this is your, your patient's most personal information. Sure. And, and so using G Suite versus using something like uh, WebPT or Clinicent, where I'm assuming all of this is already built in as far as the, the privacy protections and the BAA and everything is built in when you purchase your, uh, when you start using those platforms, right? So that's one yeah. less thing to worry about if you went the route of WebPT or Clinicent or any of the other uh, EMR billing type sites. Right. And with G Suite, if you have it, let's say on your cell phone, um, it's about being really careful about things like if you're using it to schedule patient visits and a reminder pops up on your phone and you don't have the notification settings right. And so even without logging into your phone, a reminder pops up that's visible with the patient's name. That's not okay. So WebPT, I know, allows you to send out... Um, patient reminders, allows you to do scheduling through there and all of that. Right. Um, and I know that their servers are crazy secure as well because right. I've read on them and I don't know much about clinician, um, but I know that that those programs are very comprehensive. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so, so I think just things to watch out for if you are using G Suite is that you are responsible for all of those security uh possible security breaches and things like that. So you have to be, you're sort of putting on the PT hat, the practice owner hat, and now you're also the chief technology officer, right? Yeah, so it's much cheaper, but I mean, yeah. it's something you have to figure out what your time is worth as well. Yeah. And maybe as you get busier, you decide, you know what, it's worth it to me to see an extra patient or two a week and not have to manage my data systems. Got it. Okay, so that's a difference. So I think G Suite is what, 5 or $10 a month. I know um, I use WebPT. I'm not a paid spokesperson for WebPT, but um, I have an out-of-network practice, so I don't use their billing. So for me, it's $49 a month or $50 a month. Um, and uh, here's a, how about if you're faxing? Can Because you can fax from G Suite, right? Can you fax from G Suite? Like, how do you then fax if you have to fax something? And, yeah. or, and, and or can you email? Can you fax? I, I'm not sure about these things, you know. Um, the The reason I use WebPT is because I can just press a button and it says fax. I'm not a technical genius. I don't know how. To, I don't have. 
And like you said, how much is your time versus your money worth? I'd much rather just pick up that one extra patient. I mean, for me, it's less than a patient a month for me yeah. to, to use it. So, you know, you just have to kind of make that decision as to do you want to save the $45 or $50 or $100 or whatever it is to kind of do all of this on your own or do you want to have someone have already gone through and, and done it for you? So you and, and only you can make that decision. But I think those are some, uh, it sounds like with G Suite, if you go through the two-step authentication and sign the BAA, your HIPAA compliance, you don't have to worry about that. I think then you just have to worry about your communication from there. Right. And that's, that's going to be, in my view, the biggest issue because, for example, my physical therapist uses WebPT, and so the patient reminders I get from WebPT, the invoices come from WebPT. When I've asked her to share my records with me, I get a secure file and I have to log in to WebPT. So it's all very much done on WebPT's terms. My data is all accessed on their terms. And I just truly don't know um, how that works with, with Google Suite. Um, and so I think that they may be doing an awesome job, um, but I, I tend to recommend people use the PT-specific software management systems because I feel like it really streamlines your life. <laughs> all righty, great. Okay, so another question from Blake is does an e-signature, someone typing their name on a PDF, for example, have the same legal weight as a signature that's inked in pen? The process of printing, signing, scanning, faxing can be cumbersome. That's a great question, by the way. Yeah, I get it. Um, as an attorney, I use a lot of signatures as well. Um, so I would say that being an attorney, the term legal weight is a little too broad. So it depends on what legal significance you want that signature to have. Um, do you want it to be admissible in court at a trial? Or do you want it to bind the patient to whatever they're agreeing to? Um, I think the best practices is that you want signatures to always be given the greatest possible weight in any conceivable situation. Um, you want them to be given the greatest legal effect and thus you need to obtain them carefully. So ultimate best practice, if we just threw convenience out the window, I would say every signature would be obtained in person and you would watch them sign it um, because then you know that that's exactly who signed it. Um, the considerations, though, with electronic signatures, I would say, are the same with any signatures. So the first concern would be you want to make sure the party intends to be signing what they're signing. If you tell them that they're signing it, a release to have lunch with you on Tuesdays and they're actually signing a release giving away all their legal right to sue you for malpractice, it has no legal weight anyway because they didn't intend to sign what they signed. Um, another consideration is that a document, if it's e-signed, should say that it's e-signed, electronically signed. Um, it should expressly state that. And then the patient should expressly consent to e-signature, meaning the document should say within it, as the patient signing 
on the line below, I agree that I'm electronically signing this. And so you may also want to use more secure methods of electronic signature. Um, in my practice, I use DocuSign. It's a program. It's $300 a year or something. And I can send an unlimited amount of signatures and stuff. And the way that it verifies that it is who I hope it is, is by the email address. So what I recommend is having the patient send you an email from their email address saying, send me emails at this address, um, which helps cut down on hopefully some of the potential fraud of someone signing something they're not supposed to or something like that. Um, the unfortunate truth of it is no signature method is foolproof. Um, so I, I just encourage caution and best practices. Yeah, and it, I, I know, I've heard of DocuSign, and another one is like EchoSign, I think. I've used EchoSign in the past as well, and it's kind of along the same, along the same line. So the technology is out there, but I, I think it's very important that you said that on your document that it expressly states, I am signing this via uh, an, an e-signature. Right. Yeah. Because then it's documenting how the signature was obtained. So if six months from now you're looking through your documents and someone says, I never signed that. Um, and this would come up most often in an informed consent to treatment problem um, where someone has unfortunate consequences from a treatment and they say they didn't consent to it. Something like dry needling or something or who knows what. Mm -hmm. Um and you say, no, you consented to it, and they don't remember signing it, and you've got maybe a copy and pasted signature on there, and it's not clear if it was electronically signed or what, where just state how you plan to, to obtain signatures and then have a policy for how you approach it. Okay. All right. And all that would be, again, going back to our policy and procedures manual. Boy, that thing's coming up a lot today. <laughs> Unintentionally, too. I know. Okay. <laughs> Next question is from Eileen Kurtz, and she asks, is it okay to structure therapist pay as a percentage? I always thought it was fee splitting, but have seen many owners starting to structure pay this way. And I know that it, this question probably needs a little more clarification, um, but I'll have you. Sure. Um, I do think it's, it's slightly too broad or I don't want to miss the mark and not answer what um, Eileen's asking. I believe she's asking about how physical therapists are being paid by their employers. Um, so I'm not going to answer it directly. What I will say is that a lot of states do allow physical therapists to share fees within business partnerships and that there are exceptions to fee splitting rules in some states. Uh, for specific employment agreements. But what I recommend is that employers have an attorney draft their employment contracts for them to be sure that they're compliant with the law. And then I always recommend people have an attorney review one. Um, it sometimes takes an hour of my time to review a contract before you sign it because it can bind you in so many ways. I'll have a uh, clients who signed an agreement right out of school six years ago and agreed to all this stuff, um, non-compete clauses and tons of stuff. 
And it ends up costing them much more money on the back end trying to get out of it than if they just had someone review it and probably gotten some of the clauses stricken at the beginning. Right. So um, sounds like, is it okay to structure physical therapist pay as a percentage? It, it sounds to me like if you're the therapy owner, you just want to be very clear on how you're going to set up your practice and pay your employees by having a very comprehensive employee contract. Um, and if you're the employee, then you want to get said contract and have it reviewed by a lawyer. I mean, I was sent a contract once by another physical therapist and I had my lawyer review it and she got back to me in a, I don't know, half an hour and she was like, there's no way you can sign this contract in its current form. Just, it's absolutely cannot do it because it was a very, very poorly written contract. Um, and so she sort of took it from a one and a half, two page contract to a nine page contract that had better provisions for both parties. Right. You know? A lot of times what these contracts are lacking is clarity and that hurts everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So so for Eileen's question, consult a, your, consult a lawyer when you're thinking about how you want to pay your employees. And, and I also think you have to take a good look at the way that your clinic is set up. You know, are, are you insurance-based? Are you out of network? I'm sure that is going to uh, make some differences there. Are you paying your patient per, or paying your therapist per patient? Which is another, you can certainly do that. It's just another way to go about it, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and, and I don't know, does that, is, does that incentivize then your therapist to go out and bring patients into the practice? Probably, because I guess the busier you are, the more money you're making as a therapist, right? Yeah, absolutely. I would also want to be sure that it's not, I mean, in terms of thinking about how I would react if I were Eileen's, attorney and let's say Eileen's a, a fresh out of law or fresh out of law school, <laughs> fresh out of PT school, PT, and this is her first job. I have no idea. Um, I would really want to ensure that she wasn't being taken advantage of in any way and that she wasn't going to be responsible for collecting on the accounts of these patients in order to get paid. Um, right out of law school, which is why I misspoke, I had a a uh, law firm that offered me a job, but was only willing to pay me based on the percentage of client fees that I collected. Not that I billed, but they were going to turn me into essentially a collection agency too, if I wanted to be paid. And I said, no way. And I felt like they were taking advantage of me and just sort of using me for profit. And I'm really glad I didn't take the job. And so I'd encourage people to not be I don't know what the PT job market's like. I know it's rough for young attorneys right now. I'd encourage them not to be so desperate to take a job that you end up taking one that really isn't going to allow you to treat in the way that you have spent all this time educating yourself to treat. You, you really deserve to be in an environment that advances your profession and your professional existence in a way that matches your vision and all your hard work over the past several years. Yeah. So. Sound advice. Sound advice. Okay. Next is from Jared Carter. He asks, are there any legal issues with offering treatment slash service discounts to patients, not physician professional referral sources, 
when they refer friends and family. So you have, so what, what I think he's saying is you have a patient, they are your number one biggest fan. This patient it, it has referred to you all of their friends and all of their family. So the, do you then give them a treatment or service discount? Nope. And that is awesome that they have done that. <laughs> but no, you don't. Um, the, if you remember the example I gave of the Ohio PT Act saying any referral from or to any source in any kind um, encompasses, unfortunately, friends and family. So, no, there's no financial incentives to patients in exchange for recruiting other patients. This could seriously thwart the provider-patient relationship if the more sort of patients they recruit, the more money they get from you, if it's a gift card or if it's a discount or any of that. Um, I think of, I have the Southwest Airlines credit card and I get 5,000 points for every person who I refer to the card. And, you know, my father-in-law is savvy enough that he's like, I don't want your card. I know you get points for it. And so it's very similar to that sort of thing. Well, it, it, it reminds me of affiliate marketing, right? So, and if you're an affiliate marketing for someone else, so, so let's, let's talk about this really quickly because I see this a lot emerging in the PT world as well. So affiliate marketing. So when you're an affiliate for someone else, it means that you're getting paid in some form, whether that be a percentage of the program, whether that be a flat fee per sale you get a percentage of that every time someone purchases from whatever it is the link that you're giving them. So when you put that link out there, all you have to say, and this is a, what is it, an, an uh, FTC rule, right? Federal Trade Commission, I think it's an FTC rule. So if you're out there on social media and you're saying, man, you got to take this program. It was awesome. I loved it. Join me. I'm going to take it. Do this. It's great. You have to put on there Maybe not, you don't have to do it before the doors open to the program. But once the doors open to that program, you all you have to put is hashtag affiliate. I'm an affiliate for this program. So can you, but then I've had people say, well, what's an affiliate? I don't know what that is. So can you explain what an affiliate means? Because I think this is central to this question from Jared as well. I don't know. Well, I understand what you're saying, and I agree. You see on Instagram and stuff like that, uh -huh. hashtag ad, hashtag affiliate. Yeah. Um, but I think that even aside from that, there's some concerns here about whether, and it's the same concern that motivates what you just explained, which is if I'm telling people, go see my physical therapist on Facebook and stuff, and I get 20 friends and family members in to see her, what does that do to my relationship with my physical therapist? Do we now have a conflict of interest? Because we've sort of entered into this weird business relationship where I'm bringing her business and she's paying me for some bonus for that business. So you would want to really be careful about that because that exactly gets into the issue that, that you're talking about. It potentially thwarts the accuracy of information about the quality of the services when people are getting financial benefit. Another huge problem with this, though, is privacy concerns. In order to give, if I refer my husband to my physical therapist and he goes 
and he sees her without me ever knowing. And I get a $50 gift card to Starbucks in the mail next week saying, thank you for the referral. I only referred one person. I know he went and saw her. Now she's breached that privacy. She has breached his privacy. It's his right for no one to know that he went and saw her. People need to be able to refer people to quality providers without worrying about breaches of privacy and stuff like that. So I think that there's a number of, of sort of issues with this and really would recommend against it. Yeah. So bottom line is, can you offer treatment service discounts? No. No. You could say, thank you very much. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you very much. I will give your friend, family, loved one, the best possible care I have, I can, and hopefully they will get better. And that will be my thank you. Yeah. And I'll say to my PT sometimes, because I carry her cards in my wallet. I think she's amazing. I'll say, oh, I referred you. I referred so-and-so to you. And she says, oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I get the majority of my patients through word of mouth referrals. And I always, I will always say to them, or a lot of times my patients, they'll email me. They'll say, hey, I'm sending you so-and-so your way. Let me know if they contact you. Um, Or I'll see them next time. I'll say, oh, hey, thank you for referring so-and-so. That was so nice of you. And thanks. Yeah. Yeah. It's a win-win. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. It doesn't have to be monetary. Okay. Next, uh, Anthony Sinecor says, my question is actually actually relatively simple. Uh-oh. You know it's not simple if it starts out with it's nope. actually simple. <laughs> That's a disclaimer. <laughs> yeah. As a future practice owner who is just getting started writing a business plan and thinking about how to structure the business, where do you start, where do you start when looking for legal counsel? Does it have to be a healthcare lawyer? Most importantly, if you're not sure where you're going to quote-unquote set up shop, is it okay to have a lawyer that is based in a different state, or should you try and find someone in your current state when going through this process? Great question. Um, I think that, first of all, starting out by writing a business plan and coming up with an actual intention about how you're going to run your business is fantastic. That is exactly where you should start. Um, The second part is I would say it's awesome that you're planning on involving an attorney. The number one, eh, probably number one mistake I see people making is they have had their accountants set up their businesses. Now, most of the time, this is okay if you're opening a widget store or something. However, different rules apply to opening healthcare practices. And I have had to uh, close and reopen numerous businesses because their accountant set it up in a way that made it impossible for them to register with the physical therapy licensing board in the state, which is then an ethical violation and all of this stuff. So it's way easier to just start with an attorney. It's usually not very expensive to set up a business and then you don't have to redo it. So I would say starting there, um, there are healthcare lawyers, associations and things like that. Um, you can definitely look on those sorts of directories. However, what I strongly recommend is word of mouth. Ask, ask your local mentors, ask, people you respect, ask other healthcare attorneys, even if they're out of state. Um, Yeah, because they went to law school. They might actually know people who live in other states. 
Yeah. And what about asking your local chamber of commerce or something like that? Would they have some input into that? Yeah, they very well may. Um, I think you want someone who is entrepreneur minded, who's used to working with small businesses and startups. Um, Jack of all trades, I generally recommend avoiding. Um, I think that the jack of all trades, master of none applies accurately nowhere as well as it does with law. Um, someone who does DUI arrests and wills and estates and healthcare startups and all that stuff. You need someone who's apprised of these laws and who spends their time doing this stuff. Um, but I'd say word of mouth. I always recommend that on all referrals, word of mouth. Yeah, I, I think that's great advice. I know when I first started my business, I had my accountant do it, and then I did have to dissolve it and restart it again. And was it a big deal? No. Did it cost me money? Yes. So, you know, it cost me money. It cost me time. It was nice to, to do it the right way the second time around by having a lawyer set it up for me. And, and yes, yeah, setting up a physical therapy business is much different than if I wanted to set up a business selling scarves. Yes. You know, because you do have to go, I had to go through the state board, at least this is in New York State, you have to go through the uh, education board of the state, you have to send paperwork to them, they then verify and certify that yes, you hold a professional license with the state of New York, they then send it back to you, then I, I was applying for a PLLC, my lawyer then gets the articles of incorporation, sends it back to the state. So it's a lot of back and forth, yeah. sends it back to the state. And then in New York State, you have to advertise in three publications for X amount of time. I forget how much time it was. I don't know if it was a week or two weeks or three days or whatever. I don't remember. But you have to do that in order to set up your business. So if you were to go to a lawyer that didn't know these nuances or to your attorney who or your accountant who guarantee probably doesn't know these nuances, you're kind of screwed. Yeah, well, you're going to end up with an LLC that isn't actually legally allowed to provide physical therapy services. Exactly, and that's a big problem. Um, and, yeah. and then that kind of leads me into the next uh, question from Lauren Bellows-Bar, Bear, B-A-H-R, Bear, Bar, anyway. In order to set up a business structure, an S-Corp, is it advisable to work with an attorney or okay to use legal Zoom? Well, you get what you pay for, is what I say. So, legal Zoom can be great if you're opening a scarf business. Um, it's super cheap. I think you can start a business for like a hundred bucks or something. Um, people pay me to use my brain and to apply it to their specific situation. So, a lot of times, uh, I'm able to come up with a more creative or nuanced approach that legal Zoom isn't going to get to. Right. Plus, um, LegalZoom is not going to get you the privacy policies. It's not going to get you the healthcare-specific stuff you need. But if you're opening a scarf business, um, it, I would recommend LegalZoom over hiring me. Okay. <laughs> All right. So there we go. So the, I think that that took care of a whole bunch of questions uh, in one answer there. And the last question is from Adam Cecil. And uh, he asked this, I think this was on the Cash PT Nation on, on one of the Facebook pages. So I answered, I think, a little bit for him, but um, I will ask you his questions as well. As a mobile PT doing house calls, any stipulation of patients not getting reimbursed due to not having a set physical location of business? So you can probably even speak to that better yeah. than I can. Yeah, so what I said is no. Um, <laughs> in order for your patient to be reimbursed, 
They need certain things to be on that super bill, one of which is place of service. So on place of service, you put the number 12. And you can look this up online. It's very easy. You can just Google, you know, place of treatment service, physical therapy, Medicaid, Medicare, whatever you want to look it up under, under CMS, um, under the rules. And you just put the number 12. 12 is for doing home visits. I don't know if it's either, I don't know if it's 10 or 11 for in-clinic visits, but that's the, that's the only thing that you would have to do differently on that super bill. So uh, no, they would not have any problems getting reimbursed. Um, and then his other question was, what steps are needed for patient to request out-of-network reimbursement after cash payment to a PT? With the other one being, are there any differences with Medicare? So I will have you, I, I will take one part of this. How's that? What steps are needed for the patient to request out-of-network reimbursement? Pretty simple. You give them a super bill. That includes the CPT codes, their diagnosis code, how uh, your total bill, the place of service, the date, your EIN number or tax ID number. Um, if you do not have a tax ID and you are using your social security number, I would say stop doing that immediately and get yourself a tax ID. Um, or incorporate yourself and uh, get yourself a tax ID, as Aaron's nodding. Um, and uh, your total bill, your CPT codes, and how much you're billing per code and how many codes were billed for that session. So you give that to the patient. The patient will want to call their own insurance company and ask their insurance company, is there anything I need? First of all, do I have a deductible? Have I met my deductible? If I have not yet met the deductible, then can I use these uh, physical therapy service toward that deductible? Is there any paperwork from the insurance company that then you would ask your insurance company, do you have any specific paperwork that I need to fill out to send in with my claim for reimbursement? And then finally, is there, do I need any pre-authorization? It used to be only in-network needed pre-authorization. Now some out-of-network clients are requiring pre-authorization. So do I need pre-authorization? And if so, what does that mean? Sometimes it means that you send in your uh, initial evaluation along with your super bill and whatever other paperwork is necessary uh, for reimbursement. Did I miss anything major there? I don't think so. I yeah. had one unrelated uh, yeah. comment that... so. As you and I talked about in the last podcast I did with you, I had persistent pain for years, and now I'm super active. I do yoga, rock climbing, all this stuff, and I find that I am in physical therapy just as often when I slide my foot on the rock climbing wall and need help and stuff. So I actually shop insurance plans based on their physical therapy benefits and how difficult they're going to make it for me to call up my PT and say, I screwed up my hip this morning. Can I come see you this afternoon? So if you have patients who are receiving a lot of physical therapy, it's open enrollment right now. Now is the time for them to actually do something about their plan. So Yeah, great idea. Do some research. Okay, so the other half of that question I will let you take the answer on, and it's are there any differences with Medicare? There are, because you can't accept cash from Medicare patients. <laughs> um, so this is something that I hear about from time to time with my clients, they believe that they can see Medicare patients, some of them believe, they can see Medicare patients for cash 
um, without submitting the claim to Medicare and without being a Medicare provider. They believe that this falls under the so-called HIPAA loophole. Um, there is no such loophole. So I see a lot of people running into trouble on this. So I will explain sort of my thinking on this and I'll lay out a hypothetical of what the situation is um, that creates a lot of complexity for people on this issue. So if you're truly a cash-based practice, you may not be a covered entity under HIPAA, meaning it doesn't apply to you like we talked about earlier. If you're not a covered entity under HIPAA, HIPAA's rights and responsibilities don't apply to you. Thus, you cannot run for cover under HIPAA if it doesn't cover you to shield what you're trying to do, which is operate outside of Medicare's requirements. HIPAA is a patient protection law. It exists to further your patient's interests in having their medical care kept confidential. It does not exist to shield your Medicare fraud. That is not its point. Laws are interpreted and construed in accordance with their, the spirit of what the legislators sought to do when they enacted them. No one was thinking, let's enact this law so that patients can hide this information when their providers ask them to um, and make sure that the providers can get cash payments instead of paying through Medicare. Medicare has what's called a mandatory claim submission rule. It's mandatory. When you offer a covered service to a Medicare beneficiary, physical therapy is a covered service, you must, it's a shall provision, you shall, the law says, submit a claim for that service. If you're not a Medicare provider, you can't submit a claim. Thus, <laughs> You can't see that patient because you can't do what's required under the law. It doesn't say if you see a Medicare beneficiary and you're a Medicare provider, you need to submit a claim. No, it says if you offer a covered service and physical therapy is one, you must submit a claim because you can't do that. You do not have the right to treat these people for cash. So I'm going to play devil's advocate because this is what I hear a lot also is, well, the pa what if the patient says... I don't want you to turn into Medicare. This is my decision. I'm paying how I want to pay. I don't care. I want to see you. You're the person I want to see. It's not fair that I can't see you. I'm going to pay you cash, and I don't care. I don't want you to turn it in. This is the United States of America. I can see whoever I want to see. So there are some that argue that that creates the HIPAA loophole and that that makes it so that, and that there's authority and some, quote, this authority saying this is what we're pointing to. This right here is why we don't need to submit these claims. The authority they're pointing to, without getting into how laws are made, is a comment on a concern, a comment on a comment on a proposed rule implementing various Medicare laws. If I were if you were arrested for Medicare fraud, because you did all this, and <laughs> I was representing you in court, I would say, Your Honor, but I'm looking at this response to a comment on a proposed rule, and this says that Karen was allowed to be doing what she's doing. Um, 
I wouldn't feel like awesome about it. And I probably wouldn't get any sleep the night before the hearing because I'd be like, Ugh, this is not a great argument. Um, if you're not in trial and you haven't been caught or gotten in trouble for this stuff, I would say most people's risk tolerance is way too low to tolerate this sort of risk. I would not rest the way my practice operates on a response to a comment on a proposed rule implementing a law. To me, that is nonsensical. And that if you want to see Medicare beneficiaries, then take Medicare and the amount of money and sleep that you will, the amount of money you'll lose will not nearly um, exceed the amount of sleep you will not lose by not playing with fire with this. Got it. Okay, so uh, I think that is the end of all of our questions. So we are going to wrap things up. So before we do that, are there any last minute thoughts or or advice that you have for anyone listening to this podcast? I think that I'll go back to the the Medicare um, cash pay thing again for a second because it's something I hear come up a lot. And I had a, a prospective client who called me recently and who firmly believed he was allowed to see Medicare beneficiaries for cash. And in speaking with him, he said, I explained to him what I explained to you. And he said, it doesn't seem like you understand this issue very well. Would you like me to send you an ebook that I got on this topic? Now I said, no. And the ebook is not written by an attorney. I'm an attorney. And I said, I'm trying to protect you. And that is really what underscores the work I do on behalf of all of my clients. I want them to have successful businesses. I want them to diminish and limit their risk. And I'm a healthcare attorney and this is my expertise. And I'll sort of lay out the hypothetical of what happens if you get caught doing this. And the penalties are civil and they're criminal. Um, but it's not hard for someone to get caught doing this. And there's chiropractors who have been caught because they're in a similar situation. And what happens is you have this patient who signs, you know, an agreement saying under HIPAA, I don't want you to submit it. And I promise I don't want you to submit it. And they didn't really read what they were saying. And they didn't realize that signing that and then going against it could have dire consequences for you. So then a month later or six months later, they go ahead and submit to Medicare for reimbursement because they want the money or they never really understood it to begin with. And you get a letter and a call and then some more letters and calls from Medicare saying, uh, we're missing information on you because we got a claim that you treated a Medicare beneficiary for a covered service and we don't have the right info because we don't see you in our database. Like, before you even manage to call your attorney, you then get a call and a letter from the patient's secondary insurer who says, can you go ahead and send me your opt-out letter before I file this claim? Uh-oh, you don't have an opt-out letter because PTs can't opt out. So you now have to go hire an attorney, which is going to cost you a bunch of money, which is not going to make it look worth it that you went and saw that patient. And the penalties can be very far reaching, sometimes a couple thousand per visit that you saw these patients for cash. So
So I think that there's a lot of noise out there about the cash PT and Medicare interplay. And I just really encourage people to make well-reasoned decisions about it. Um, consult with a healthcare attorney. Don't consult with like imposter professionals who say that they can interpret laws for you and that they're not practicing law, but that under their reading of the law, this is what the law says. Um, this is your livelihood. You have worked so hard to get to this point. And just like I go to a PT when I have a musculoskeletal thing, I really urge you to go to a lawyer when you have a legal thing, because there is just so much risk involved here. And I hate having young, sometimes in their 20s, PTs come to me and say, well, this is what I was planning on doing and having to have this conversation. So, um, it's just a really tricky issue. I'd also love to, I've made friends in the PT world as I've been working with people. And I would love to just provide a few examples of people that new PT practice owners can talk to. I mean, you run an awesome concierge practice. And I think that, I mean, I've had the chance to get to know you and since we talked the last time and think that you're absolutely an awesome resource for people trying to figure out how to make this work. Um, Ryan Smith, who I met when he was working at Entropy, um, is running a great practice in Ohio. He's right out of school and he's running a great cash practice. And then there's Entropy in Chicago that takes Medicare and sees cash patients. So reach out to people and talk to people about what they're doing, how they've made it successful and get some mentors. Yeah. Um, so I yeah. really encourage that. And I see a lot of the, if people have good quality mentors, I see a lot of the legal mistakes sort of diminish because they're getting good advice and they're making decisions based on what's right and not what they want to be the rules. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's great advice. And now if people want to get in touch with you, uh, where can they find you? Um, I run a nationwide uh, compliance business that's jacksoncompliance.com. And then I have a law firm in Illinois that's jackson-legal.com. And I think you'll have all the info. Yes. yes or I'm Healthy Lawyer on Twitter. Right, as Healthy Lawyer on Twitter. And yes, uh, don't forget, everyone, all of this information and links will be on the show notes at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And a big thank you to Julie, my uh, intern, for doing such great notes as she has done uh, for most of this year. And it is so, so easy to see. If you look way back into episodes where I was doing the show notes to now where she's doing the show notes, what a <laughs> difference. Um, so a big thank you to her because she works really hard. Um, and that's podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. You can find me on Twitter at Karen Litzy NYC. That's the same as on Instagram and Facebook slash Healthy Wealthy Smart. So, Erin, uh, thank you so much for coming back on, this time putting the professional cap on versus the patient cap. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Karen. And everybody, thanks for listening. You guys have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.